Hello, listener to the St John's Downshire Hill podcast. We unfortunately had some technical issues yesterday on Sunday the 7th of July 2019 and we weren't able to record the um, sermon as normal in either the morning or evening service and as a result I'm now going to record the sermon for you in my study. It will probably sound a little bit odd and artificial but hopefully still helpful as we look at this really important topic of the Lord's Supper and what it means to receive it. So I hope you find it helpful. So let's pray. Father thank you so much for this time to look at your word and we pray now that you'd help us to understand what you're saying and to see more what it means to share the Lord's Supper and through that to get to know Jesus better. Amen. Well, can you imagine living in a world without signs? During World War II, that is exactly what people in Britain had to do. It was believed that invading enemy paratroopers would be unable to locate themselves after landing if all signposts were removed. But of course, the problem was that British civilians spent six years facing exactly the same problem, getting lost in open countryside. Of course, even when there is a sign, it can sometimes deceive. I was going to a conference recently and they had posted people outside the tube station to point you in the right direction when you arrived. Because, you know, even with Google Maps, you can still find yourself completely disoriented when you walk out of a tube station in central London. You know, it's all very well seeing what's there, but which way is north? And, And on this occasion, I arrived and there was this guy with this kind of a massive foam finger on his arm which was designed to point us in the right direction, but the the issue was he was talking to a friend and he was gesticulating wildly with his arms and as a result I set off initially in the wrong direction. So signs can deceive, they can also be misinterpreted. Here's one from outside a church. Don't let worries kill you, let the church help. Do you know what hell is? Come and hear our preacher and so on. And then some signs are frankly just a waste of time and space. A while ago I came across a plaque that had been put up in the centre of a town called Market Harborough, which is a town in the Midlands, and uh, there's a good chance that this sign that I saw could win the world's most boring plaque award if it existed. This is what it said, see what you think. It said, Market Harborough The repaving of the town centre was carried out in 1994 to 1995 as part of a project initiated by the Department of Transport following the opening in 1992 of the A6 bypass. There you go. Visit Market Harborough and you can tick off from your bucket list both a pedestrianised town centre and a bypass in one hit. So signs, we definitely need them but they can be misused to point the wrong way, they can be misinterpreted, they can be a waste of time and we're talking today about a sign, a sign that Jesus gave to the church relating to his death, the Lord's Supper, communion, holy communion, sometimes also called the Eucharist and by Roman Catholics the Mass. We're doing this as part of our series looking at five marks of a healthy church based on the reading from Acts chapter 2. We've seen over the last three weeks they were devoted to the word, devoted to one another, devoted to prayer, 
and now we're seeing they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now for them, the breaking of bread might well have meant a full meal in the context of which they remembered Jesus' death. We do the same today in a more symbolic way, but for the same reasons. But you will probably be aware that this sign has been a major source of disagreement and confusion over the last 2,000 years, not least around the 16th century Reformation, but since then as well. Like the signs we thought about before, this is a sign that is necessary because Jesus commanded it, and yet it can certainly be misused and misinterpreted and and furthermore with with many Christians today including some of those who would call themselves Bible believing evangelical Christians it can also be viewed with suspicion or seen as irrelevant and boring and a waste of time so that's why we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 11 to help us understand what this sign is all about and we're going to see how Paul says or implies that we need to look in four directions as we celebrate the Lord's Supper so four directions that we need to look in. The first one is this. Look back in remembrance of Jesus's death. Look back in remembrance of Jesus's death. So this is about ensuring that the sign is pointing in the right direction at the right I received from the Lord what I so also passed 11 to you. Verse, the uh, Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he does the same with the cup. So there's two things to think about here. First of all, what does he mean by this is my body? Does the bread literally turn into the body of Christ? That's how the Roman Catholic Church has understood this transubstantiation. Is Christ's body in some other mystical way physically present in the bread? That was Martin Luther's understanding. But both of these don't quite make sense when you think about what was actually happening as Jesus said these words at the Last Supper. His body was physically there in front of them, speaking to them. So it really makes no sense to hear him saying, this bread is literally my body. But it's more like this. If I pick up this wooden skewer and I say to you, hey you, look, look at this skewer here. This, this is you. Watch what I'm doing with you. And then I break the skewer. Do you get the point? Do you feel slightly threatened? What then is Jesus saying when he says, this is my body and he breaks it in front of them? He's saying, this is a sign. This is a symbol of what is going to happen to him. Now, this was particularly the view historically of John Calvin and Huldrych Zwingli. And the Church of England followed their lead in the 16th century on this point in the Book of Common Prayer, which still heavily influences the liturgy we use today. And they did that because they believed that that was what the Bible was saying. The bread and the wine remain bread and wine. The table at the Lord's Supper is a table. It's not an altar. Officially, Church of England churches don't have altars. You're not supposed to call them that. Because on the table, we remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, just like he was pointing forward to his sacrifice on the cross at a table at the Last Supper. So that's what we're doing. We're not redoing that sacrifice here and now. Again, that's the Roman Catholic view because 
the bread and the wine have in that view literally turned into Christ's body and blood so that he can be re-sacrificed here and now in front of us on an altar. The effect of that, when you think about it, is to remove any sense of certainty and assurance about salvation. So, uh, it, because it depends on you continuing to come and be part of the Mass, because every time you sin, it's as if Jesus needs to be sacrificed over and over again. But the Bible is clear. Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all. So if you're conscious of sin, or even if you're not, you can come to the Lord's table confidently knowing that the price has been paid for your sin once and for all. But at that point, you might then ask, well, if what we do in the Lord's Supper is purely in remembrance of what Jesus did, well, why do we have to do it like this at all? Why do we have to do anything at all? Why couldn't we just look at a picture of the cross or even a picture of bread and wine? Why couldn't we just watch the minister acting out the Lord's Supper at the front and derive the same benefit from it? Surely we, we can remember by watching it happen. Do we, do we really need to eat and drink? Well, that's where we need to understand the second direction in which we need to look. We've seen we need to look back. We then secondly need to look up to feed on Christ in your heart. If you flick back a page, you'll see in chapter 10, verse 16, the opening verse that we heard earlier in the service. And it, it tells us that there is something more going on with the bread and the wine than merely remembering. I mentioned Zwingli before, but and, and he said it was just remembering, but Calvin disagreed, and he did so because of verses like this. So verse 16, let me read you that, chapter 10. It says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Now he's warning the Corinthians about taking part in idolatrous feasts because they involve participating spiritually in demonic activity. And he's saying there is a participation taking place when we receive the body and blood. Some people question whether the body in view is the church, the body of Christ, which it appears to be in the next verse and yet the blood of Christ which he says first in verse 16 it, it, that, that's never used in the Bible as a way of talking about the church so because of the parallel within the verse it makes sense that verse 16 is referring to us participating in some way in Jesus's physical body and blood so when we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are participating in some way in Jesus's body and blood. But where is Jesus's body now? Well, it's not here on the table as we eat this meal. No, Jesus is in heaven. He ascended there. And the New Testament tells us in many places, we are now united with him in the heavenly realms. More than that, we read in Ephesians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 3 and places like that, our lives are now hidden with him. We are seated with him there. And so, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So if we are participating in Jesus' body and blood and the Lord's Supper, it can't mean that he comes down here. It must mean that we go up there. 
And so many questions such as John Calvin and in this country Thomas Cranmer, who wrote much of the Church of England's Book of Common Prayer in the 16th century, that people, these people have spoken of a parallel feeding. We feed on the bread physically here on earth around the table and we feed on Christ spiritually in heaven. Our hearts are lifted there by his spirit as we feed in faith. And this in turn nourishes and strengthens that union that we have with Christ in heaven. This isn't automatic because our union with Christ is by faith. The New Testament is very clear on that. So if you don't come to the Lord's table trusting in him, then you're just eating bread and wine. And indeed, that is a dangerous thing to do, as we will see in a moment. That too, by the way, is, the, is why we need to be baptised before we come to the Lord's table. Because baptism is a picture of taking that initial step of faith. But put this all together and you can see why we often say, as we distribute the bread, words which are taken straight out of the Book of Common Prayer. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. That's looking back. But then, and... Feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. That's looking up. Do you see? All, all those words there, they're not just sort of made up or brought together randomly. They're there for a reason. So, the Lord's Supper, is it just an optional extra? Is it just take it or leave it, a slightly suspicious ritual? You know, if people might say, if we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, do we really need it at all? Well, surely the answer is, why wouldn't you want to feed by faith on Christ spiritually, who died for you? Don't you want your union with him to be strengthened and nourished? This is his gift to us, his people. So take it, eat it, drink it. So look back, look up, and then thirdly, look around at those with whom you are united in Christ. So Paul's particular issue with the church in Corinth is that they've turned the Lord's Supper into an occasion for selfishness and one-upmanship. So have a look at verse 17 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. He's being sarcastic there. The Corinthians love to claim God's approval for themselves and that's kind of how they conduct themselves all the time, uh, pushing people down and building themselves up. Um, but uh, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. So do you see what he's saying? We've seen that the Lord's Supper is all about union with Christ. And if we're united with Christ, then we're also united with one another in Christ. But you Corinthians, he's saying, are hypocrites. So picture this. The Corinthians would have had no church building like we do. They were meeting in homes. No doubt in the homes of the more wealthy and successful of the church family who could afford a big house where everyone could fit in. And the catering would have been bring and share. And that's fine and brilliant. But what was not fine was that Lord and Lady Rich, who hosted the church services, were welcoming and favouring Sir Reginald Loaded and Baroness Money to Burn 
But when Mr Broke and Miss Deep in Debt turned up late from their 15-hour shift as slaves, they were left to eat their own meagre sandwiches at the back. And while the lords and ladies got on with feasting on the food, fine food and drink they had provided for themselves. It's not the Lord's Supper, Paul is saying. It's a competitive meal. It's a chance to show off. Now, we might think this doesn't make much sense. You know, no one's tempted to to rush up and grab half the bread on the table in, in our Lord's Supper services and um, to, to sort of down the wine before anyone else has had a chance. That's not really a temptation for us at all today. But the point is more for us that the Lord's Supper is also a corporate thing, not an individual thing. We, we, we no longer tend to do it as a full meal these days. We do it as a symbolic thing because uh, precisely because it is a sim- symbolic of Jesus's death. But either way, it is still a corporate thing that we do together. We can't talk about doing my communion, for example. It's appropriate when we receive communion to do so reverently and seriously, not flippantly or casually. But at the same time, we mustn't forget this is something we do together. When was the last time you ate a meal with other people in total silence? In my house, that happens rarely, thankfully. But that it would really only happen if everybody was absolutely furious with one another. So I would suggest that Talking quietly together while others are receiving communion in a service like this is entirely appropriate. Especially if we're reflecting together on the sermon that we've heard or we're praying for one another and encouraging one another. And you know, yes, of course, we can give each other space to pray alone if we want to. But if you really want to pray alone, which you know, which is a good thing to do in and of itself, the best place to do that is at home in a room by yourself. That's actually what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. The whole point of church, the whole point of being together, is to be together. And there's a particular point here about needing to be at peace with one another. Some churches do this again in a very stylized way of going around shaking hands before we receive communion, using those words that are printed on the handout. And again, it's symbolic and perhaps culturally a little strange these days, which is why we don't do it here. But I usually try and say when we invite people to the Lord's table, come if you are at peace with your neighbour. That's really the application of these verses 17 to 22 today, because it would be hypocritical to do the thing which expresses unity if, in fact, there is a real point of disunity between you and a brother or sister, especially one in the church family. Put things right, then come in faith and receive afresh the symbols of of God's forgiveness and feed on Christ in your heart. And then finally look forward to the final judgment and banquet to come. So verse uh, 27 to 32, look at verse 27 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be condemned with the world. 
So before we come to the Lord's table, we need to examine ourselves. Am I trusting Jesus? Have I been baptised as a sign of that? Am I at peace with others in the church family? And here, am I recognising the body of the Lord? Well, which body is he talking about? His physical body or the body of believers around us? Both are possible, and it's not entirely possible to be clear, but both amount to the same thing. It's failing to appreciate that this meal is not a normal meal. It's failing to appreciate that this is about our union with Christ who died for us, which in turn brings about our union with one another. Paul says that as we take the Lord's Supper, we need to look forwards and anticipate the final judgment to come. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that is why we need to examine ourselves now. Because we are acting out in the present what will happen on that day. That final judgment will be followed for those who trust in Jesus by a banquet of which this meal is a foretaste. It's a banquet centering on Jesus who died and rose. So anticipate that now by not receiving the bread and wine without examining yourself. This is something that Christians often struggle with. You know, is he saying in verse 30 that not taking communion properly will make you ill? That being ill is a sign of God's judgment? That the Bible is consistent in saying all, all sickness is generally the result of human sin, which began with Adam and Eve in the garden. Some sickness is directly the result of our own sin. You know, a more obvious example would be sleeping around may well cause you to catch a sexually transmitted disease. But often that link between sickness and sin won't be there. Nevertheless, the warning is there. This is something to take seriously. And that is why we say, if you're not trusting in Jesus... It isn't appropriate to receive the Lord's Supper. Now, of course, there are genuine believers who have very sensitive consciences. And it's often these people who find these warnings the hardest to understand. But, you know, because you worry, don't you? Perhaps there's a sin I've not repented of. Perhaps there's a person I don't even realise I've hurt. Well, that isn't the point of this at all. The Lord's Supper is for sinners, not for those who have not sinned but precisely for those who have sinned and you come to receive forgiveness afresh. It's like Jesus saying, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He come to call those who were prepared to come to him and ask him for forgiveness. The warning then is for those who receive the Lord's Supper with no interest whatsoever in what's actually going on in their heart. They wouldn't even be asking the question, about sin in their hearts. It wouldn't even be an issue for them. The person with a sensitive conscience is completely different from that. Can you see that? The person who is asking, have I sinned? Have I, have I done the wrong thing? That's exactly the right question to ask. And if you're asking that question and there's nothing obvious, come to the Lord's table and receive the forgiveness that you need. Robert Murray McShane put it helpfully, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at the saviour the thing about examining yourself and recognizing the body also has a bearing on whether it's appropriate for children who've been baptized to receive communion paul is clear the lord's supper needs to be received with real genuine faith baptism is administered on the basis of parental faith and on the basis of god's covenant promises to the children of believers we saw that in genesis chapter 17 and you can go back and listen to that 
sermon on the website if that if you if you miss that and you want to hear why baptism is different but the, the, the lord's supper is different from that it's for those who come trusting and understanding what they're doing now i've reflected on this and realized i've been slightly unclear on a couple of occasions when children have been present about how to handle this in the church of england the normal practice is for children to wait until they are confirmed before they receive communion but the church of england also allows for children to receive communion before confirmation where there is clear evidence of faith and they have received suitable preparation therefore what i'm going to try and say more clearly from now on is that normally children will not be invited to receive communion unless they have been confirmed or unless their parents have first had a conversation with me in which I can explain this more clearly and we can talk about whether it's appropriate for them to receive communion uh, even though they haven't been confirmed and with the right uh, preparation and evidence of faith that may well be appropriate for some. But that conversation obviously needs to happen before a communion service takes place. And just to be really clear, we don't otherwise say that you have to be confirmed in order to receive communion. Um, so there'll be plenty of adults who, who come to the Lord's table um, and you know were baptised in another church or denomination in the past. Um, and, and we're not saying you have to be confirmed in, in that situation. Uh, you need to... Uh, but it's if you're grown up in St John's or, or you, you've come here as a child... Um, you know the question is when how do you tell how do you mark passing from being a child to being somebody for whom it is now appropriate to express your faith and receive communion and the answer is normally via confirmation or else via a conversation where we where we agree that that is appropriate um, we would also say that if you have received communion already and you were already in the habit of receiving communion uh please continue don't i mean we, we you know you, you wouldn't be you'd no, no one would be asked to stop receiving communion except for the fact that uh, we need to be at peace with our neighbor and we need to examine ourselves and that's up to the individual believer to do that as they come to the lord's table the best thing to do is to come and talk to me if you want to understand more about this so don't misinterpret the sign. Don't misuse it. Don't sideline it. Receive it as God has intended it for you to strengthen the union you have with Christ by faith. If you're trusting in Jesus, you've been baptised, you're at peace with the church family and you've examined yourself, then come to the Lord's table.